Welcome to Smart Healthcare Safety from ECRI, the most trusted voice in healthcare, committed to advancing effective, evidence-based care. I'm your host, Paul Anderson. Tens of thousands of healthcare leaders rely on us as an independent, trusted authority to improve the safety, quality, and cost-effectiveness of care across all healthcare settings worldwide. You can learn more about our unique capabilities to improve outcomes at www.ecri.org. This episode is part of a special series we're producing as part of the response to the COVID-19 pandemic. You can find more podcasts and other free resources on the ECRI website in our COVID-19 Resource Center. We're recording this podcast from our respective home offices as we practice and encourage all of you to practice good social distancing. Today, we're talking about some of the first steps healthcare organizations are taking in resuming more normal operations. It's a necessary process, but one that can be fraught with risk for patients and providers alike. To get us started, I'll ask our guest to introduce himself. Hi, my name is Jim Davis, and I'm a Senior Infection Prevention Analyst and Patient Safety Consultant with ECRI Institute. My background is critical care nursing and infection prevention. So, you know, Jim, obviously there's a lot of local variation in what it means to say that we're starting to, you know, resume normal operations, kind of normal in quotes. Um, but we are starting to see some movement in that direction around the country. And, you know, we've seen guides on things like resuming elective surgeries or reopening primary care practices. What's something that maybe is not getting enough attention, do you think, as we start to plan for resuming more different kinds of care? That's a great question. So some of the, you know, I, I see all these plans and I see global, you know, strategies for returning to quote unquote normal. And I'm going to phrase that, that right now there's not going to be anything uh, that's normal about reopening. What I mean by the global plans is, you know, they're, they're very generic guidelines that you, that someone's going to have to take and tailor uh, those it's one thing to put together a document, but it's another thing to actually implement uh, what those documents are alluding to, referring to, and suggesting. One of the biggest things that I don't see is, um, at least in the mainstream media, is, is stories about how one would do that implementation in terms of what we call in the risk management realm is uh, FEMA, and I'm not talking about the feds, I'm talking about FMEA, or Failure Modes and Effects Analysis. And that's something that in healthcare, historically, we do it after something happens to figure out what happened and what the risks were. But in its beginnings, in the military anyway, it was done as a pre-planning phase uh, to figure out what may go wrong and how you can mitigate that um, as you're, or, or actually in the military was planning on doing something, but this is the same thing. It's planning on opening or, uh, you know, and you should be, it's a construct and a methodology that we should really be following when it comes to specifics and details on how to address reopening in individual practice or ambulatory surgery or resuming surgeries in a hospital. Um, you know, it's, a, it's, it's, it's meant exactly for this purpose. I don't really hear much of people recommending those actions, honestly. And Jim, if I, I know this is a ridiculous oversimplification, but I mean, fair to sort of characterize FMEA and other proactive risk assessments, a, a big part of the basis of them is asking, okay, at each step, 
what can go wrong? Yeah. <laughs> and then what do we do about it? Exactly. And that's, you know, from, from the moment of, you know, before the patient even gets to you, how are we, you know, how are we screening? We saw a lot of this, not to the extent of needing to reopen, but we did a lot of this around H1N1 and Ebola when it came to screening questions. And, and then, you know, it's, it's that knowing how to prepare yourself for what's coming at you when you reopen, but also what are you going to do when they get to the waiting room? You, you can't have 10 people sitting in a six by six waiting room anymore. You need to plan for social distancing. What's that going to look like? Are you going to schedule people with intervals and we'll take ambulatory surgery, for example, you know, that's essentially for lack of a better word, a production line. And the more cases that you can get done, hopefully safely, the higher your revenue streams are going to be. And that's kind of a lot of what's driving this right now, of course, is getting those revenue streams back up so people can remain in business to serve healthcare for everyone. You know, one of the biggest things is, are you going to be able to take that hit in productivity now? Because you need to factor in things like social distancing, um, taking more time between patients. Maybe you're not set up with a big waiting room and you have to bring one patient at a time. So there's scheduling issues. Uh, if a case goes later, you know, how do you deal with that type of thing? So you might not be able to be as productive, for lack of a better word, than you were before because you need to factor in all these safety issues, to, not only to protect your staff, yourself, but other patients as well. So, you know, again, I'll, I'll just keep saying it, but, uh, you know, allowing for a lot of regional variability. I think it's fair to say that a lot of staff in organizations, whether they're hospitals or ASCs or physician practices, you know, to, to different degrees are stretched really thin in responding to the pandemic. But it sounds like the kind of planning you're talking about, you know, that requires some real dedicated time to, to focus on that. So, how important is it for leadership to make sure that the right staff have the time to do that kind of planning for the next steps? Yeah. And, and I, I, I hear you. And that's, that's totally true, especially since like, and we're going to go back to ASCs again. A lot of that's a lot of those folks that weren't able to perform surgeries, even in the acute care in the hospitals and other places, um, even in nursing homes and things where administration was staffing the floors, but particularly in surgery, those folks need some support now because they were dealing with, and, 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 and anywhere, we're dealing with COVID patients. So it's not really fair to say, okay, we're switching gears now, go back to how it was, because it's not going to be how it was. So I think psychological support, um, some formalized, you know, for lack of a better word, therapy or um, some at least some crucial conversations around how folks are feeling about returning to quote unquote normal, but like I already said, it's not gonna be normal for a long time. The other thing too is about having the right people. So infection preventionist, honestly, there's not a whole lot of us and there's even less of us now. So, you know, getting some sort of support from an infection prevention standpoint may be challenging, but you need that support to be able to plan for these things effectively. Bring in your risk managers, for, again, for that FMEA process, and the IPs know how to do that as well, the infection preventionist. But it's, it's crucial to make, uh, to make it a success and keep, uh, you know, keep from exposing others and, and, and keep it safe, basically. 
So as, as folks start to move forward in reopening uh, probably really any kind of practice or, or organization, what are some cues you'd be looking for to know if things are either going well or not going well? What would be your telltale signs? Well, you know, if, if you're opening and, you know, we know we have these little, you know, the stages like, I don't know where I live, it's red, but in other places it's yellow and you might be able to open up uh, a little more, um, you know, uh, a little more easily there. I would be as an IP or infection preventionist, I'd be looking for, you know, I'd be doing a lot of surveillance. I'd be looking at my employees. Um, did, did an employee get sick and what was the sick? Is it fitting the case definition uh, for COVID-19? Um, do I have, am I doing my appropriate follow-up with my patients? Am I asking the right questions? If a bunch of my patients that are, you know, basically maybe don't share all demographics and I'm seeing the only common factor being my practice or my ASC or my whatever, um, I'm going to take a long, hard look at, you know, what I'm doing and was it me or my practice or my ASC. I'm also going to look at um, lots of other things like auditing. So, you know, what I need to do from a quality and safety perspective as far as it, making sure staff and patients are adhering to whatever policy I wrote and whatever hopefully FMEAI did and are those risks manufacturing themselves. It's, it's not, you don't write it and set it and walk away from it. You may have to continually revise. And that's why, like I said, I'm harping on FMEA, but that's a tool that's going to help you get to some of those issues. The other thing too, is you really can't do it on paper, especially when it's a practice. Um, hmm. My experience, pediatricians kind of got it right from the beginning. There's a sick side and there's a well side. So usually their spaces are, for the most part, their spaces are made to handle seeing sets of patients that are sick and then well. And I've even, I mean, they even cohort the physicians already. Only one physician sees the sick, one physician sees the well. At least that's been in my experience with all the practices I've consulted with uh, on infection control. So there's lessons to be learned there. Mm -hmm. With this scenario, you know, a lot of adult practices and they, they, they have one waiting room. You're sitting right next to the guy that's coughing his brains out. Is that the smartest thing to be doing? Probably not right now. Um, if at all ever, I'm hoping it changes practice for the better when it comes to infection and prevention and control. There's a lot of lessons that are going to come that are coming out of this this uh, this pandemic, and I'm hoping they stick. Well, you know, Jim, you mentioned surveillance, and that makes me think. You know, with something like an ASC, there's going to be a lot of follow up naturally, just occurring. I hope you know after even in the, even before the pandemic, there's going to be follow up. But a lot of you know reasons you might go to your primary care provider, you know, say it's just a routine visit, it's an annual physical or something. You know, there there may not be a built-in follow-up, right? You know, in the short term, it might be see me in six months or a year. Are we do we are we going to start to need to thinking about adding some of that short-term follow-up? Hey, even even so, even before we know that something has happened, maybe just sort of proactively seeking it. Hey, you were in my practice two weeks ago. If that's the right time frame, we're calling all our patients who were here all the time to make sure that nothing's changed. Yeah, I, I mean that's going to be a hard ask, especially now. But I mean, it's not a bad idea to be actively looking 
for cases and epidemiological links, that's a big ask, but it is about questions. So if you're typically following up with somebody, I mean, I, when I go to the physician now, I'm a little older, right? So there's always follow up. There's always, oh, did you, you, know, <laughs> I, did you get your labs done? Or Jim, you're a bad boy because you didn't get your labs done. You know, is there a question that can be asked that are like, oh, and, you know, in general, how are you feeling? I would ask those questions if I had a failure or a lapse in uh, controls, meaning that if I thought I had someone who didn't, especially with this virus, because you can be shedding before you're symptomatic, if I thought there was an exposure or I had good, reasonable doubt, then I might follow up with those patients who are well. Um, and didn't come to my office as being sick. Now, in the ASC world or surgery, there is follow-up, but it's about the questions that are being asked. Hmm. So, again, you know, if there was a lapse or something like that, I'd be asking. But um, and, and we are doing some surveillance in, in the surgery world uh, for uh, infections. So right. most ASCs I've consulted with do that anyway. And maybe then I'd throw a question in, maybe just because I care. But if you're if you're collecting if you're already calling them to have a little augmented or a little enhanced surveillance may not hurt. Um, could it be attributable to community spread? Sure, but um, that would be also something that if you see a high number of cases coming back to you in your in your in your surveillance, that might be something that alert the local health department to to give them a heads up. And is the other piece of it, I guess, even even when you can't do sort of that full on active, you know, follow up with every patient, is it making sure that they know what to be looking for themselves to call you? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, part of this is going to be education, not only around those control measures, but, you know, that's that's key. If they don't feel well, they should be seeking help. They shouldn't be afraid to go now have their elected procedure or, or that they've needed, but have been putting off because of this, if we design uh, an appropriate plan um, and implement, that's, that's the whole key. To be able to implement it is completely different than designing it. Um, you can probably, you could spend a lot of time designing it, hopefully using some sort of methodology like we mentioned with FMEA, but you know, it's that implementation. What I would love to do, if, I mean, if it was me and I, was, I had a practice where I had a, a center you know, I'd, I'd fake it. And that's a really loose term for simulation. So, you know, bring in some staff members have, and run through it with physical bodies, simulation in situ, right? Um, practice where you're going to play. Uh, so you get the feel and what it's like to be, you know, how, what it's like to be a patient. But do that, you know, right now you have to do it safely, right? You have to make sure that right. nobody's symptomatic and that kind of stuff. And, and universal masking is going to go a long way and social distancing. But, you know, that's the type of things that you may not know what the issues are unless you simulate it in your space. So, you know, it sounds like this sort of proactive looking forward management of this whole process is is really a key. I'm not going to say it's the key, but it's really a key in doing this safely. What's a first step? Where do we get started to begin that process? Well, first step. First off, situational awareness. Know what's going on in your demographic, in your community. Um, where you're getting your patients from. So A, situational awareness. Forge those relationships uh, with your local health department so you have uh, true, accurate information coming to you so you can make the best decisions. You know, the second step that goes along with that um, is that uh, planning for risk. The FMEA, whatever methodology you want to use, your proactive risk assessments, that kind of thing. 
to understand once you have your situation awareness, what you need to do to protect your practice, your staff, your center, your patients, their loved ones. You know, it's not just about you and the patient. It's about who they're going home to as well. So, mm. you know, you asked me for the first step, but they're kind of like lockstep, step one and step two kind of go together. Great. Jim, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. Learn more about how ECRI can help from our website at www.ecri.org, where you'll find our COVID-19 Resource Center with publicly available resources to help providers across the continuum of care. Be sure to subscribe to Smart Healthcare Safety on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts to get our latest episodes. We welcome your feedback. Please visit us at ecri.org slash podcasts or email us at ecri-podcasts at ecri.org.